Silence, great is thy faithfulness. Morning by morning, new mercies I see. All I have needed, thy hand hath provided. to share, feel free to do that between songs. If you have a testimony of God's faithfulness, please do share it. If you uh, have a prayer request or anything like that, please share that as well. pray. Father, we come to you and once again, as we've talked about, we know your faithfulness is there and it is real and it's, and it's alive. But we also know that you have, you have put us here on this earth for a short time. We are in these imperfect bodies that fail and will one day pass away. But Father, we come to you in our imperfections and we ask for healing and strength especially on the on the part of this man father that's had a heart attack and I pray that you would meet him where he's at this morning and his family as well father meet his physical needs but most of all that his spiritual needs in you would be met and that he would thrive spiritually and be drawn closer to you through this experience. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. song says there's a place of quiet rest and you know that that's the heart cry I think of of most people especially as you get older in life we we long for a rest and for peace and against all the the stress and the striving and and all the pressures of life and the world tells us a lot of places to how to find that rest. A lot of money, a lot of wealth, stability that way. 
all sorts of things. This is how you find that rest. Have a good retirement. You don't have to worry about anything in your older years. All good things in and of themselves, but that's not where your true rest comes from. You know, it's so simple. It's near to the heart of God. In his presence, that's where rest is. Our place of quiet rest near to the heart of God, a place where sin cannot molest, near to the heart of God. Oh, Jesus, blessed Redeemer, send from the heart of God. Hold us who wait before Thee, near to the heart of God. There is a place of comfort sweet, near to the heart of God. A place where we are Savior meet, near to the heart of God. Oh, Jesus, blessed Redeemer, stand from the heart of God. Hold us away before Thee, to the heart of God. There is a place of full release, near to the heart of God. A place where all is joy and peace, near to the heart of God. Oh, Jesus, blessed Redeemer, sent from the heart of God. Hold us who wait before Thee, near to the heart of Thank you, Tim. Uh, you're not you're not unique in in that. There is there's something about the stillness of the night, laying there, uh, not sleeping. Um, why it is that perhaps the devil uses that time to attack, to bring doubts, to bring fears. Um, but it happens, and I'm sure it happens to most if not if not all of us um, I can I can say that for myself as it's the time when I can experience the most fears the what ifs well what if that what about the future what about this what about that and it wasn't those things were not uh, it's, it's nothing new 
David talks about that in the Psalms as well. But also what he talks about in the Psalms is dwelling on God's word throughout the night. And uh, I can I can also attest to that. While some of my most fearful times have been in the night like that, some of the best times as well is dwelling on God's word and just pouring my heart out to him for hours at times. How that can be the sweetest time as well. What another one of those instances, what what the devil the time that the devil wants to use, the tactics that he wants to use can be turned around to ultimate glory in your life by focusing on Jesus Christ. And how wonderful he is, the wonderful Savior that he is in our lives. Wonderful Savior is Jesus my Lord, a wonderful Savior to me. He hideth my soul in the cleft of the rock, where rivers of pleasure I see. He hideth my soul in the cleft of the rock that shadows a dry, thirsty land. He hideth my life in the depths of his love and covers me there with his hand and covers me there with his hand. A wonderful Savior is Jesus my Lord, he taketh my burden away. He holdeth me up and I shall not be moved, he giveth me strength as my day. He hideth my soul in the cleft of the rock, that shadows a dry, thirsty land. He hideth my life in the depths of his love and covers me there with his hand and covers me there with his hand. Numberless blessings each moment he crowns and filled with his fullness divine. I sing in my rapture, O oh, glory to God, for such a Redeemer as mine. He hideth my soul in the cleft of the rock that shadows a dry, thirsty land. He hideth my life in the depths of his love and covers me there with his hand and covers me there with his hand. In his brightness transported I rise to meet him in clouds of the sky. His perfect salvation, his wonderful love, thou shalt with the millions on high. He hideth my soul in the cleft of the rock Shadows a dry, thirsty land. He hideth my life in the depths of his love and covers me there with his hand and covers me there with his hand.
It's an old <clears throat> hymn written by Fanny Crosby. Does, anyone, does anybody know where in Scripture that is taken out of? He hides you in the cleft of the rock and covers you with his hand. You know that's in Scripture? Okay. That is there. Um, where is an example in Scripture of that happening? Tell us about it, Phil. That has always uh, intrigued me, how that God appeared to him and showed him his glory. And yet he knew Moses' human limitations. And it's still that same way for, for us in, in our lives. God, God wants to show us his glory, I think, so often. We don't want to see it. In fact, the, there was a pretty stark difference. Moses' uh, response to the, uh, the rest of the congregation's response to the glory of the Lord. What was that, Phil? Where Moses' face was shining? He said, hide, hide it. Cover your face. We don't want to see the glory of the Lord. Do you want to see the glory of the Lord this morning? He'll show it to you. And all the while, he'll protect you. He'll give you only what you can handle of his glory. But his glory is there for you. Heaven came down in glory, filled my soul. There's that word again. If you listen closely, you might hear Phil shouting in it during this song somewhere along the line. <laughs> what a wonderful, wonderful day, day I will never forget. After I wandered in darkness away, Jesus my Savior I met. Oh, what a tender, compassionate friend, he met the need of my heart. Shadows dispelling with joy, I am telling, he made all the darkness depart. Heaven came down and glory filled my soul. When at the cross the Savior made me whole. My sins were washed away, and my night was turned to day. Heaven came down, and glory filled my soul. Born of the Spirit, with life from above, into God's family divine. Justified fully through Calvary's love, 
Oh, what a standing is mine. And the transaction so quickly was made when as a sinner I came. Took the offer of grace he did proffer. He saved me, oh, praise his dear name. Heaven came down and glory filled my soul. Cross the Savior made me whole. My sins were washed away, and my night was turned to day. Heaven came down and glory filled my soul. Now I have a hope that will surely endure after the passing of time. I have a future in heaven for sure, there in those mansions sublime. And it's because of that wonderful day when up the cross I believe. Riches eternal and blessings supernal from His precious hand I receive. Heaven came down and glory filled my soul. When at the cross the Savior made me whole, my sins were washed away. And my night was turned to day. Heaven came down and glory filled my soul. Glory! Amen. All right, you can be seated. Jemiah, do you have a children's lesson for the kids today? All right, well, I'll let you... Take that now. If kids want to come forward. Well, mine are here. Yours are here. Okay, so here, Dizzle, Lucas, you guys come closer. No, hey. Dizzle, come here. Have a seat closer so you can see the story. All right, Lucas, sit down. Okay, so today I'm going to read you a story that's titled Many Silent Years. So this story takes place when the Lord was quiet to his people for a lot of years. Okay? Years passed without a single word from God. So this is the Lord's people and with the Lord speaking to them, okay? And the years turned into many years, and the many years turned into hundreds of years. And the great promises of God seemed to fade away. Israel became less important in the world. Other nations became greater. 
strong nations, powerful nations whose kings ruled over God's people. One such king, does anybody know what king this might be? Well, that's a good guess. Ooh, what do you think, Eden? Caesar? Let's find out. This king was Caesar Augustus. Yeah. Oh, yeah, yeah. This Roman ruler thought he was very important. One day he wondered to himself, how will everyone know that I am the great Caesar, the Roman ruler, the king of the world? I know I will count all the people under my rule. Surely that will show the world how great I am. So he was going to count all the people that lived under his authority, thinking that that would make him the greatest ruler. So Caesar, the Roman ruler, the king of the whole Roman world, began counting all his people to show everyone how great he was. was what Caesar did not know was that, what do you think? Uh, well, yeah, he wasn't the greatest. He didn't know that. He thought he was. Was that God, the world's true ruler, the king of the universe, was getting ready to show everyone how great he was. God was going to end his many years of silence. God was going to keep his promise of a forever king. Who might that be? Oh, there. And do you know how God was going to do this? Not like Caesar, not proudly by counting all his people, but humbly by becoming one of his people. In the power of his spirit, God would bring his forever king into the world as a baby. The end. Would you like to continue? Yeah? Okay, so the next one, the next one is God's promised one is born. So we just read about the Lord was going to end his silence, right, and show the rulers of Rome that he was the true God. Okay. Look at all the people on the road to Bethlehem. They were on, they were on their way to be counted and they were very unhappy. They were mad at the king, and they frowned as they walked. They were angry with the king, and they grumbled as they walked. They were pouting because they had to go be counted. And they didn't have cars. But not everyone was unhappy. Do you see the happy couple on the road? If they were mad at the king, their faces didn't show it. Do you have any idea why they were so happy? Ah, there you go. Mary soon was going to have a baby. God had told Mary and Joseph that their baby was the one promised long ago. He would rescue God's people, give God's place back to them, and bless all the people of the earth. 
But in this crowded city, where would this special baby be born? In a nice big home? Nope, not in a nice big home. In a clean hotel? No, not in a clean hotel. All the nice big homes and clean hotels were filled up with people. Can you guess where this special baby would be born? There we go. God's forever king was born in a stable, a place for animals. His parents named him Jesus. They wrapped him up warmly and laid him in a manger. What a strange place for a promised one. Who would have imagined it? While Caesar, the king of the Roman world, was showing everyone how great he was by counting all of his people, God, the king of the universe, was showing the world how great he was by sending his son into the world as one of his people. What a very big day. What God had promised to Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, and David had arrived in the birth of Jesus, and news of his great arrival was about to spread. The end. That is the end. Okay, and I brought you guys little treats. Take one and pass it around. Take one and pass them to everybody else. Take, a, take one and pass it. That should be enough. Does everybody have one? Up there, Lucas? Everybody has one? Okay, good. Excellent. You go. You can be seated. Thank you, Jemiah. are coming into that season of the year where there's a lot of thought given to the birth of Jesus and, and the events of that time. Unfortunately, there's a lot more thoughts just uh, given to the commercialization of a holiday, if you will, but uh, it's good to have our minds drawn back to the true meaning of this season, and I think that was a good one for the kids and for all of us there, Jemiah. Welcome to each one of you that are here this morning, visitors, those online. We have a little smaller group than usual here this morning, but I have no doubt that our fellowship can be just as sweet and the voice of the Lord can be just as loud and powerful in our lives here this morning. If you have your uh, bulletins, there are some announcements in there. If you don't have your bulletins, apparently Steve didn't do a good enough job handing them out. <laughs> he may even have a few yet if you need one. Um, there is a cookie and candy exchange coming up on Tuesday the 19th. Talk to Katie if you want more details about that. There's Christmas caroling coming up as well, which uh, Phil's going to give some announcements about that, so I won't expound on that myself. And 
John and Sarah are coming back here in the next uh, two weeks or so, I think, and the beginning of the year, on January the 6th, we're having an open house here to celebrate their 50 years of marriage. Not something you uh, see very often in uh, this day and age anymore, so we're thankful for that example that they have set in the body here of a faithful marriage for all those years. There's coffee, tea, water back in the foyer. Help yourselves. For those of you visitors, feel free to help yourself anytime back there. Um, Phil's going to be sharing the word here with us this morning. Before we do that, let's have a word of prayer. Father, I thank you for this time here this morning. I thank you for this season of the year that we're coming into where we specifically remember the the birth of your son Jesus and the beginning of that wonderful plan of salvation you've laid out for us. And through it all, through all the noise of the holidays, I pray that our hearts and minds would not be sidetracked or distracted from the real reason of our celebrations. It is you and the plan that you have given us for our salvation, and we thank you for that. Thank you for our time here this morning. and Pray for Phil as he speaks and brings your word. You would bless him, give him the words that you want us to hear. Bless our time together in our fellowship. In Jesus' name, amen. Oh, I did fail to mention, um, and especially for you visitors, we do have a meal planned after our service. That is something we do most Sundays. So please stay and enjoy that time of fellowship with us as well. Phil? to the household of God, God's living room. You know, um, it's human to enjoy big crowds. There's an energy that comes with that. But in case you've missed it, Jesus only had 12 disciples. Three years of his ministry, he ended it with 12 men. He began it with 12, he ended it with 12. Who were his close friends? He said they were his family. And now he calls us his family. There's something unique about small group settings, fellowship, that a lot of people miss in the large group energy. And that is Jesus. You know, you can draw a lot of spiritual energy from others and completely miss Jesus. And so one of the things that is precious to me is when Jesus said, where two or three are gathered together, there I am. That's all I need. What about you? Do you draw your spiritual energy from crowds? All of us do to some level. But for me, it's only emotional, not spiritual. Where I draw my spiritual strength from is his presence. And I hope you do too. 
This morning you may turn your Bibles with me to 1 Corinthians chapter 13. I would like to look, take a look at a more excellent way. If I would title it, that's what I would title it, because that's what he titles it, the Holy Spirit does, through Apostle Paul. 1 Corinthians chapter 13, uh, beginning of verse 31 of chapter 12, right after Apostle Paul is sharing with the church at Corinth, and by the way, in the early church, just to give you a synopsis, a picture, the church at Corinth was not one big, large crowd of thousands of people. That's not how the church in the city of Corinth gathered together. Now, they may have had times when they did, but they were house churches, many of them. The letter begins in Corinth, Corinth Paul saying, it's reported to me about the condition of the church in the city, numerous house churches, by the house of Chloe. That means that little church sent Paul a letter saying, this is the condition of the believers in the city. This is what's going on with all of us different churches. Church. The Holy Spirit looked at the city and said, my people in that city are my church, though they gather in numerous little households of fellowship. At the end of the chapter, in chapter, six, um, chapter 16, Paul says, Note the household of Stephanus, the church that's gathered there in his house. They were special. You know what was special about them? They had an addiction problem. Only it was a good problem. They were addicted, and I like it this way, it was intentional, an intentional addiction. He says, they have addicted themselves to the ministry of the saints. They loved to share. And they were known by that. They addicted themselves to serving God's people. That was a good addiction problem. And the Holy Spirit goes as far through Apostle Paul to record it in the scriptures for us to say, note those people, follow them, and submit yourselves to them. Verse 15 of chapter 16. Now I urge you, brethren, you know the household of Stephanus, that they were the first fruits of Achaia. They were the first household to come to Christ in the region. And that they have this word, this translation says, devoted themselves. I like how the New King James says, addicted themselves. In the Greek, it's a similar word. It's when you give yourself wholeheartedly to something. And they devoted themselves for the ministry to the saints, that you also be in subjection to such men and to everyone who helps in the work and labors. So, when the Holy Spirit is writing this letter, he's writing to the church. And I just want to encourage you, now, when the Holy Spirit is writing this letter, don't minimize the Word of God in your life to a few select people who you meet with regularly on a Sunday morning. That will greatly hinder God's work in your life, in your ministry, in your service to the body of Christ. I see that the Holy Spirit is speaking this word to the church in the whole world. I was in Australia earlier this year and preached on this subject to the 
churches who had gathered together for an Easter service or conference. And people from all over Australia, numerous different places, came together, these numerous churches, to fellowship together on this weekend. The word is true to our brothers and sisters in Australia as it is to us here in Greeley. It's the same word to God's people all over the world. And so I would encourage you, open your heart, not only to the word of the Holy Spirit, but to how he wants to minister through you to God's people in this city, not just in this little location. We are the household of God, God's people. And this word is not limited to one small gathering of God's people. A more excellent way, let's read chapter 13, verse 1. If I speak with the tongues of men and of angels, but do not have love, I have become a noisy gong. Boom, boom, boom. You know what a noisy gong is? I'll tell you a funny story. This is a noisy gong. This is what comes to my mind when I think of this word. Years ago, when Katie and I first got married, we had some friends. And we were close friends. They, they got married the same year we did. Uh, and um, and there were a, 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 about a, maybe two or three of us couples that got married that year, and we were, we were close even before we were got, got married. But after we got married, we hung out a lot. And one Saturday morning, we, were woke, we woke up, and Saturday mornings was the mornings we slept in, right? Well, around, I don't know, maybe it was 7 o'clock or something like that. All of a sudden, we heard this boom, boom, boom outside the house, going around the house. And we were like, what the world is going on out there? It sounded like... People were beating on pots and pans. We looked out the window, and here were these our friends marching around our house with these pans, these cooking utensil pans and, and spoons, and banging on them and saying, Come on, get up, we want breakfast. <laughs> that was funny. But it definitely woke us up. But it was not a musical orchestra. It was just a lot of noisy gunging. It led us to fellowship and breakfast. So don't be discouraged by the noisy gong in your life. Who knows what it will lead to, all right? However, that noisy gong had some love in it. Not just a love for food, but it was in love. We loved each other as couples. We were close. And so the noisy gong part of it was an expression of that closeness. Don't shut out God's people who might seem like noisy gongs for a little bit. Who knows where the Lord might lead you to loving them. However, if I am a noisy gong, if I have the gift of tongues of men and angels, but do not have love, I have become noisy gong or a clanging cymbal. And if I have the gift of prophecy and know all mysteries and all knowledge, and if I have all faith so as to remove mountains, but do not have love, I am nothing. And if I give all my possessions to feed the poor, and if I deliver my body to be burned, but do not love, do not have love, it profits me nothing. Love is patient. Love is kind and is not jealous. 
Love does not brag and is not arrogant, does not act unbecomingly. Now, we don't use that word in our normal English language. Maybe you do. Some might. But I looked up the middle English definition of that word, and the common expression we would use is inappropriate. Love is not inappropriate. It does not seek its own, is not provoked, does not take into account a wrong suffered, doesn't keep a ledger of wrongs suffered, does not rejoice in unrighteousness, but rejoices with the truth, bears all things. Believes all things, hopes all things, endures all things. Love never fails. But if there are gifts of prophecy, they'll be done away. If there are tongues, they will be quiet. They will cease. If there is knowledge, it'll be done away. For we know in part, and we prophesy in part, but when the perfect comes, the partial will be done away. When I was a child, I used to speak as a child, think as a child, reason as a child. But when I became a man, I did away with childish things. For now we see in a mirror dimly, but then face to face. Now I know in part. But then I shall know fully, just as I also have been fully known. But now abide faith, hope, love. These three, these three abide, remain. But the greatest of these that remain is love. Now I'd like to point out a few things here for you. The first, he begins with a comparison. If you have eloquence, you speak very well, but you don't love the people you speak to, what profit is that? What does that do for your relationship? It's only a professor. That's it. If I have a gift of prophecy with knowledge, I'm a genius. And I know how to take this genius knowledge and encourage you, coach you, inspire you. But I don't love you. I am nothing in your life. Because that doesn't profit you or me. There's no profit in it. It's only temporal. So I want you to notice these. He's talking about, verse 1, having a language or many languages, even the language of angels. Second, if I'm a gifted speaker of knowledge, intellect, and faith, but I don't have love, I am nothing. 
Thirdly, if I have sacrifice. So not only am I a good speaker, eloquent. Not only am I a gifted, eloquent speaker in your life. But I sacrifice. I do it with my whole heart to a sacrificial level. But if I don't love, no profit in it. Not for you or for me. Now, think that through a little bit. Are you sure that's true? And why do you go to college? Why do you pay thousands of dollars to go to universities to give you knowledge to gain exactly this? Gifts, languages, intellect. If you go to a seminary, perhaps faith. What are you pursuing? What profit is it in it? Is there any? I'll let you answer that question. Is there any? But we live in a world that promotes that to be the pathway to success in life. That honors that. That forks out the money for that. Going deeply in debt. Many young people in debt themselves for this very pursuit in life. Yet, the Holy Spirit is looking at that and saying, is there any love there? If there's not, it's nothing. What makes it nothing? It's a lot in this world, because you get a good education in this world, most likely you'll make a lot of money in this world, right? Education equals money. But there's one thing education does not equal. Education does not equal love. Education does not equal relationship. How many people go to college to fall in love with their professors? Hmm? No one. No one goes there seeking love. That's not what they're after. Is it? They're after an education. They're after language. They're after money. They're, after, they're in their own pursuit of life. And the people who are there are in their own pursuit of life. Doesn't make it wrong or sin. It only is nothing. And here's why. It's all going to pass away. The moment that person dies, whether in the middle of college learning or a professor in college, it's all over. That is nothing. The moment you die, any earthly degrees of education you have or languages you speak or gifts you have or eloquence in which you speak it or even the faith you have to do that equals nothing. You'll stand before the Lord, and that'll all be a zero in your life. It won't give you a mansion in heaven, and it most certainly won't give you a close relationship with Jesus Christ. You see, I believe that love is a relationship, and therefore, the, the closer I walk with Jesus, the more I develop this love for Jesus and for His Word, the closer I am with him and abide in him. And the deeper my fellowship with him on the earth, the closer I'm going to be in heaven with him. The more access I'm going to have to him in heaven. 
And I think that's where the degrees of rewards are in heaven. That 1 Corinthians chapter 3, Paul speaking to the same church, talks about. That those who pursue these other things, every man's work will be tested by fire. It will pass through the fire of love. And that which doesn't have God's love in it will burn up. It's hay, wood, and stubble. And disappear as you stand before the Lord. And if it doesn't have Christ's love and deep affection that drove you to that purpose, if it doesn't have that ingredient in your work, it's all gone. And you know what he says? You're going to lose your reward. And the reward, I believe, is not an earthly, some big gold mansion. That's a song that people sing because of what Jesus said in John 14. I go to build a place for you and prepare it for you. And some translations use, there are many mansions in heaven, you know. Well, he's simply saying there are dwelling places. There are dwelling places. That's the Greek meaning of that. I want my dwelling place as close to the throne as possible. And I believe that the loss of reward may be less access to Jesus himself. Now, that's just my assumption because I don't think that it's going to be a bigger house. or, But it also is going to be, according to Jesus, when he gave the parable of the talents, responsibility. He that is faithful in little will be faithful in much. To whom... That which he is faithful in little, more will be given. And Jesus makes this clear example in the parable of the talents that when they had a little talent and they used it well, wise stewardship on the earth, they were rewarded with double the responsibility. And the reason I believe that is, is because that responsibility in heaven is not that which is lording over other people, it's serving others. It's caring for others. It's shepherding others. And how that all looks in heaven, I don't know. But today, we are called to bring heaven, the atmosphere of heaven, down into our homes, into our personal bodies, through the Holy Spirit, into our home life, into our communities. And that is what the Holy Spirit is lifting up before us as a more excellent way, the heavenly way. One is earthly, all will pass away. One is heavenly, will endure forever. Every relationship, every act that you do out of God's love, love for God and obedience to Him, love for others will be there to meet you when you die. A reward. It will remain. If I give all my possessions to feed the poor, if I deliver my body to be burned, but don't have this eternal love, do it for the love of God and a love for people, I am nothing in heaven. Now you're going to notice there are only two things that love is. Interesting. The Holy Spirit declares, defines love very narrow way. We think love is all these other things. No. Love is, according to the Holy Spirit here, patient and kind. That's what love is. You want to find out what love is? Let 
God's word define it for you. The first ingredient of love is patience. So if you find yourself an impatient person, that's your level of love. Don't be fooled to think you love God any more than that. You don't. Your level of love for God is defined by how patient you are on God. That word patience isn't just waiting. We think of the word patient as defined in waiting, but this definition is also has within it perseverance, persevering waiting. It means an enduring waiting. That's why he says in some translations, love is long-suffering. It will suffer for a long time. It has this ingredient of endurance in it. Love is patient. Love is kind. Now all of a sudden, the Holy Spirit turns it around, and he contrasts it, and he says, five things which love is not. So the only two things that love is, five in which it's not. And you can identify this in your life. This is not God's love. This will not endure in eternity. This will not be who I am the moment I die. Because it's not who I am now. Love is not jealous. Wow. Examine your heart. When you feel these feelings of jealousy towards someone else, that's not love. Love does not brag and is not arrogant. You're going to find five things that love is not and five things that love does not in this portion. Five things love is not. Five things love does not. Does not brag. You feel temptation to brag? Let me ask you. Will you brag in heaven? Would you be saying that the moment you die to that person if you both died that second? No, you wouldn't. Not of works lest any man should boast. No one will boast before God in his presence of anything. And in fact, as I examine my own life, and as I think about bragging, boasting in ourselves, almost always boasting is partly untrue. It's a stretching of the truth, almost always. There's a little imagination in there added to what really happened. Why? Because of the motive. I only brag because I want you to think that I am something. I care about what you're thinking about me and who I am to you. That's the motive. That's not love. That come, doesn't come out of a love for God and sharing that love with others. So, you find yourself bragging? Checkpoint. Not God's love. Not going to endure forever. It's going to pass away. Find yourself in the presence of someone who needs, finds a need to brag? Not true love. It's not arrogant. Arrogance is always attached to the bragging part of it, right? Arrogance is this kind of looking down on others attitude. I'm better than they. 
Isaiah gives us a really strong warning about this attitude. He says, woe to the man who looks at his neighbor and says, I'm more righteous than you. You know what he's like to God? He says, he is like smoke into his nostrils. What do you do when you're sitting by a campfire and the smoke blows your way? You move. So does God. Turns his face away. God resists the proud. Turns his face away. He moves away from your life when this arrogant boasting comes out of us. It's in us. And that's why Jesus was so strong in his teaching, in his resisting of those of the Pharisees and the scribes who were proud of their education and of their display of it. That's all it was. It was a display. Jesus said they were whited sepulchers. Inside, they're full of dead men's bones. Outside, they're nice and clean. Inside, they were full of covetousness. All of this stuff was in their heart. He gave that story of the Pharisee who came into God's house and the sinner. Only one went away justified, the sinner. The Pharisee went away believing in his heart, in his mind, that somehow he was an asset to God because of what he did. He fasted twice a week. He gave tithes. He, he did all his service, made him an asset to God. The other sensed his desperate need for God. The one experienced God's love, the other did not. So, he continues to say what love is not. Love does not act unbecoming, it does not seek its own, it is not provoked, does not take into account a wrong suffered, does not rejoice in unrighteousness, but rejoices with the truth. It now he goes and he switches to what it does. Okay, that's what all it doesn't. But here's what it, love does. And I want you to notice that in everything, every ingredient here, in what love does, it, the ingredient is who love is. It's there because of what love is. Love bears all things because it endures forever. It's eternal. It comes right out of the heart of God. Love believes all things. It's faithful. It endures forever. Love hopes all things. It endures forever. It never quits hoping. Love endures all things. Never fails. Because every other thing will be put away. It's the part that we now have, that we now live in. But this part will all be gone one day. And the only thing that will remain is this ingredient of love. And you know how, how God himself declares himself to Moses? We were talking, Anthony was talking about how when God came and he put Moses in the cleft of the rock. Turn your Bibles with me to Exodus chapter 32. A very interesting way that God introduces himself to Moses and declares who he is. Exodus 
This stood out to me last week as I was reading through this portion of Scripture and, and I was actually studying the, the whole part of the leaven of the bread and the worship. But this just really, the Lord, it's like the Lord stood there in front of Moses and he, in front of me and he declared this to me. Here in chapter 34, actually, in chapter 34, Moses had broken the first set of the, to of the stone of tablets, the, the law that God had written on this stone, tablets of stone, because of the frustration he had with Israel when they were sinning. Now God calls him back up into the mountain again for 40 days and 40 nights, the second time. And this time God is writing it down again, and Moses had declared, Lord, show me who you are. This is what the Lord says in verse 5. And the Lord descended in the cloud and stood there with him as he called upon the name of the Lord. Then the Lord passed by in front of him and proclaimed, The Lord, the Lord God, compassionate, gracious, slow to anger, and abounding in loving kindness and truth, who keeps loving kindness for thousands, who forgives iniquity, transgression and sin, yet he is just, yet he will by no means leave, leave the guilty unpunished, visiting the iniquity of fathers on the children, on the grandchildren to the third and fourth generation. And Moses made haste to bow low toward the earth and worship. Notice how God declared himself to Moses. This is who I am. I am compassionate, gracious, slow to anger, abounding in loving kindness and truth, keeping loving kindness for thousands, sharing it with others. I want you to note that. God first declares, this is who I am and this is what I do. I share it with thousands. Pours out of me. God declares his identity by declaring his love. In 1 John, turn your Bibles with me to 1 John. In 1 John chapter 4, verse 7. Beloved, let us love one another, for love is from God. It flows from God. And everyone who loves is born of God and knows God. This is it. You don't love, you don't know God. The part of you that struggles with love is the part that only now is still earthly and doesn't know God yet. The fullness of Him. The one who does not love does not know God. Why? For God is love. It's his identity. He declared it back there in Moses. The only man who ever got to actually see his presence physically, in his physical body, he declared, this is who I am, Moses. Everything I do is love, even my justice. Even my justice is love. By this, the love of God was manifested in us, that God sent his 
only begotten Son into the world so that we might live through Him. Live through God's love in the world. And this is love. Not that we loved God. So many Christians get it wrong. Our whole life endeavor and goal is to love God. And that's why we're so frustrated so many times with the part we lack. Because our relationship is defined as how much I do for Him, how much I feel for Him, how much... And it, we're looking within ourselves or at our own identity. We're looking at the wrong person. That's not love. God is love. And love is defined... Not that we love God, but that God loved me. The only chance I get to experience real love, God's love, is reciprocal. It means I'm just the moon. I just get to reflect it. I have no love that can come from me. None. It's all selfish. It's all my own self-love. But if I come into God's love and I receive it into my heart, I let it shine upon my life. I let his words become my words. I let his thoughts become my meditation day and night. To change my language into his language of love for others. To change my heart into his heart of compassion and forgiveness for others. It'll change my heart into his heart of patience where one day is as a thousand years and a thousand years as one day. It's eternal in here. Our love for each other becomes not an act of self-sacrifice. It does not become something we need to prove to each other. It does not become an emotional feeling of things we say to each other, a pat on the back, a good word of cheer. No. It's that which comes from God flowing from His eternal heart out of my heart to share with you and you to share with me. And there God dwells and there we know God. It is an eternal eternal burning heart of love. No wonder it suffers long. That's what God is. That's what Peter says. Do not be deceived. God's love is patient. Don't think God is slack concerning his promise. He's patient. Why didn't Jesus come back in the first thousand years? Here's the reason why. Peter says it to us. I'll read it to you so I don't misquote it. 2 Peter chapter 3, verse 8. But do not let this one fact escape your notice, beloved. Notice you're loved of God. That with the Lord one day is as a thousand years, and a thousand years as one day. The Lord is not slow about His promise. As some count slowness, but is patient toward you, not wishing for any to perish, but that all come to repentance. That's 
why Jesus didn't come back yet. That's why. That's the heart of the matter. Because he wants all to come to repentance. And if God's love flows into my heart, I won't be discouraged by Christ not returning yet. By the patience of God, I'll be encouraged by his patience. Because that's who I am. He's filled my heart with his love. And now I've become that patient, persevering son. That's who I'm becoming. God is love. In this is love, not that we loved God, but that he loved us, sent his son to be the propitiation for our sins. Beloved, if God so loved us, we also ought to love one another. Jesus said in John chapter 13, this now becomes our identity, my identity. This is who I am. Outside of this, I am nothing. Not only am I nothing, I can do nothing. That will profit me for all eternity. Anything I do that is not born of God's love in my heart for others profits me nothing. It will burn up in smoke. No wonder the Lord said, this is your identity. Look at these words in John 13. This was Jesus speaking to the disciples his last night on the earth as before the cross, before the crucifixion. He came back for 40 days, you know, after he rose, and, and he appeared to many. But this was his last night before he was crucified. Verse 30, uh, John 13, verse 34. A new commandment I give to you, that you love one another, even as I have loved you, that you also love one another. Men had never heard this before. This was different. That's why he said it's a new one. What did the law say? What did the law that God gave to Moses command people to love each other with? Eye for eye? Okay. How are we to love one another? You remember? Do unto others as you would have men do unto you. You remember what I said? Love God with all your heart, your mind, soul, and strength. Aha. In Matthew 22, Jesus quotes this to the lawyer who came testing him. Look what Jesus said. In Matthew 22, he quotes the law to him. Not this, not this new commandment, but the old law. Um, in Matthew 22... Let's begin in um, verse 34. But when the Pharisees heard that he, Jesus, had put the Sadducees to silence, they gathered themselves together. And one of them, a lawyer, one who studied the Mosaic law, gave his life for it. Ask him a question, testing him. Teacher, which is the great commandment in the law? Jesus answered to him. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind. This is the great and foremost commandment. The second is like it. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. On these two commandments hang all the law and the prophets. The whole old covenant 
that God gave to man, and that's recorded there in Exodus 20 when God gave the Ten Commandments to Moses. Love God with all your heart, mind, soul, and strength, and do what you only can do. Love your neighbor as yourself. It's a selfish love, because that's all I got. I don't have any greater love than that what is within me. And God didn't put a burden upon people that they couldn't live. Everyone could love their neighbor as themselves. Anyone could do that. You and I can still do that. But Jesus was ready to start sharing his love through the Holy Spirit into these men. After he died, rose again, and sent the Holy Spirit and he knew they were going to experience God's love like never before. No one could experience it like this. And so he says to them, I'm giving you a new commandment, not like the old one under the law. This new covenant, love others as you have been loved, as I love you. Like you experience my love, so share it with others. By this shall all men know that you are my disciples when you have love, this kind of love, for one another. Men had never heard this before. Couldn't be lived. It still can't unless you experience and enter into God's love. And that love, as Romans 5 says, it has cleansed us from sin, forgiven our sins, justified us before God, and now is poured into our hearts through the Holy Spirit. And the love of God is shed abroad, like light coming out of heaven, lighting up the darkness in my heart. God's love. There are many churches, many Christians, that believe that doctrine and teaching of the scriptures is what builds the church of Jesus Christ today. And so they give themselves, like this lawyer did, to studying doctrine and teaching, believing that's the most important identity of who we are in God's family. In fact, whole denominations of God's children, whole big groups, hundreds and thousands of them in the world, will gather themselves together and identify themselves this way in God's family. We are this because we believe this. It's our identity. Doctrine is important. In 1 Timothy, the Holy Spirit warns this young preacher, Timothy, Paul does through the Holy Spirit, to take heed to his doctrine. He says um, in 1 Timothy chapter 4, verse 11, Prescribe and teach these things. Let no one look down on your youthfulness, but rather in speech, conduct, love, faith, and purity. Show yourself an example of those who believe. Notice what was most important. And then he says in verse 16, Pay close attention to yourself and to your teaching. Persevere in these things, for as you do this, you will ensure salvation both for yourself and for those who hear you. Our teaching is important because that's how we receive God's love in our heart. It's through his teaching. But when you and I begin to identify ourselves by the 
interpretation of his word in my life, something begins to happen. That same thing that happened in Revelation chapter 2 to the church at Ephesus. You know that church was one of the best churches Paul planted. Paul spent three years there at Ephesus. It started amazingly with a powerful revival, a great bonfire. People bringing all their witchcraft, and it was the great goddess of Diana that was the, 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 the witchcraft that had filled the city where the temple was there, and it was a big city with, you know, Paul came in there preaching, and they, they threw him up into a tribunal, into a court, and the church was born through that great revival. Paul spent three years there teaching them, teaching them, teaching them. And by the time that Paul was gone, like 30 years later or so, maybe 20 years later, the church was perfect. Perfect in its teaching. But it had lost something. Something so important that Jesus said, the Spirit said, if you don't repent, I'm leaving. What was it? Their first love. They had the doctrine right. They had the teaching. They dealt with those who were decept deceivers and all of that. But they had lost their love, the reason, the motive for their teaching. They had lost. They were beginning to identify themselves in their teaching. And the Lord has strongly warned me and led in my life, me away consistently, a growth of this experience in my life that when I sense that we begin to identify ourselves through our teaching, the Lord calls me out and says, repent from it, Phil. Repent from it. Come into my love and learn that this is the only identity you need. Yes, our teaching is important, but what I have noticed both in the scriptures and throughout the journey of the church all the way back to the 50, 60 years after Paul and the most of the apostles were dead, their teachings took on all kinds of different interpretations. And they still do in the world today. That doesn't win the world. What wins a soul, what draws people to God, is God's love within the heart. God's identity within me allows me to become that vessel that God draws people to himself through. And unless we have that, all of our teaching is dead works. That's what it becomes, a denomination, a dead work. I'm, I'm not here to judge any of God's people. I love them deeply. But that's personally why I cannot belong to a denomination where teaching and doctrine dominate and identify me in God's family and in the world. This is who I am. And I'll give you a denomination or I'll give you a doctrine. Jesus couldn't have put it more clearly. This is who I am. This is how people know I'm his disciple. By the love of God in my heart and that pouring out of my life. And that being perfected, perfected, perfected. I'm not all of a sudden perfect in it. 
1 John chapter 3, after he continues to talk about beholding the love of God, he said, every man who has this hope in himself purifies himself as he is pure. And he says, one day when we see him, we shall be like him, for we shall see him as he is. And until that day, that love grows and purifies my heart and my relationships. Oh, I'll share a couple testimonies with you about this kind of love and how the world has identified it and how Satan hates it and God tests it. Satan hates it and God tests it. Satan is wonderful. He's great with you having all the theology right. He was really happy with that church at Ephesus in Revelation chapter 2. And it's interesting that the Holy Spirit addresses that church first. Even compared to the last church, Laodicea, the last of the seven that he addresses, Jesus was outside the church. He wasn't in. He said, I stand at the door and I'm knocking. And if anyone opens the door, I'll come in. He wasn't there anymore. And they didn't even know it. But the first church that he was ready to leave was a church that had his doctrines perfect. It was a good church, a strong church. Outwardly thriving church. But they had lost their first love. That one was the one he was going to leave first. Really sobering reality to me. And I'll give you a few analogies of this. This is one of the reasons... Dear brothers and sisters, that you don't find me teaching strongly on certain doctrinal points, emphasizing them Sunday after Sunday, or any of us others who minister the word here to you. Our heart is to be filled with the love of God and to draw near to God and experience His heartbeat and then to be filled with who God is. Compassion, loving kindness, sharing it with the world. Patient, enduring, abiding love that is eternal. And out of that flows all the other teachings. But all of those are minimal and they can all be translated differently in our convictions and in our minds. But the presuming thing, the one that defines who we are and builds our lives together is His love. That's what makes us a church, a family. And in Colossians chapter 2, he says, Paul's praying for the church there, and he says, I pray that God would knit your hearts together in love. Some of you ladies might knit. Do you? You know what knitting is? You take a strand of, single strand of yard, right? And you start putting two and three together, and the next thing you know, you have a whole blanket that keeps people warm, that is effective. That's what the Holy Spirit is wanting to do in our lives. One great, wonderful story that I like about the revivals in the 1700s. This was in the 1720s when great revival was breaking out in England and in the United States, which was just the colonial uh, colonies here in, in, in this land. Charles and John Wesley, God used in a mighty way to break out these great revivals. They wrote many songs and preached hundreds and thousands of sermons preaching the love of Christ all over the world, their known world. In the middle of all that, there was a young man called George Whitfield. You might have remember his name. 
He came as a young man to Giles, uh, John Wesley's school, and, and he was called the boy preacher. But God had so gifted him and poured out his love upon him, and, and he was very effective. And he soon became an, a vessel of honor that God used to save many souls. But as time went on, he began to have some differences with John and Charles. And he began to have, after his travels to the colonies in America, he began to uh, become a, more of a Calvinist in his theology, in his doctrine. And he came home to England with that, and John Wesley wasn't so much of a Calvinist. He believed in the sovereignty of God, but he didn't ascribe to all of the election and, and the, what they called the, the five points of Calvinism. And, but Whitfield did, and there was a division. And they tried to reconcile it through a year, but they couldn't. They were soul theology. They became, it seemed like it grew and they divided. And so it split the churches. And yet they continued in their division of theology and doctrine. They continued to seek to love one another. God used both groups to evangelize the world in an amazing way. But at the end of their life, guess who preached? Whitfield's funeral service. His request was that John Wesley comes and preaches at his funeral, and John did. That's identity, love. Doctrine divides people all the time because we are given different interpretations of Scripture, different strengths of viewpoints, and that's not all wrong. God uses that to spread us out over the world instead of staying one big cluster. And a lot of Christians get discouraged by differences of doctrine. It doesn't discourage me at all. I think it's the wonderful fabric of God's creation. Just like His creation is so diverse, so is the different emphasis and points of doctrines and strengths of it in the church of Jesus Christ. I embrace it fully as long as it's not heresy. But when it's just a different emphasis of doctrine in the scriptures, I can fellowship with those brothers. I am not a Calvinist. I'm not a prescribed Calvinist, but I have wonderful fellowship with many dear brothers and sisters who are strong Reformed Calvinists. We can pray together and share God together because guess what? I believe in the sovereignty of God. I also believe in Romans 10, after Paul declares God's sovereignty, I believe in the whosoever will may come. Whosoever believes in him and who calls upon the name of the Lord shall be saved. I think it's beautiful that love reigns in the end. And not only does love triumph over doctrine, which all of this theology is man stuff. I love how one brother put it, whom the Lord used deeply in my life many years ago to bring me into ministry. And he tutored me for about 10 years. He was like a spiritual dad to me. And then there came a division of doctrine. And as a young man, the Lord led, me, led us away and, and we split. And there were some hard feelings about all that stuff, and it was painful. And, but in the end, just before he died some years ago, I think it's almost 10 years ago now, the Lord said to me when I heard he had brain cancer, a tumor in his brain, the Lord said, go see him. He lived in Indiana. 
And I knew this was like a deep conviction, like when the Lord convicts you of sin or something, go. So I got on a plane on a Saturday morning, went in there to see him. And as I walked into his room, he already had suffered a stroke. And he couldn't hardly move. He was paralyzed on the one side. He looks at me, and we both start weeping. And we cried and shared hearts for about an hour and a half or so. It was one of the most heavenly moments of my life on earth. And you know what he said to me? I'll, I'll never forget. He said, Phil, all these things that we are so earnest about, and we feel so strongly, and they divide us. It's all just man stuff. But he said, from where I am now, the door of heaven all passes away. And it's only love that remains. I'll never forget that, Phil. This love, it not only suffers long, it only triumphs over doctrine, it overcomes evil, every evil in our life. I'll tell you a little story about Corey Ten Boom. You guys remember her? Who she is? She was this Dutch lady who was daughter of a clockmaker in Holland, in the Netherlands, throughout when the German Third Reich came up in Germany in Hitler's reign, and Hitler overtook um, Holland and the Netherlands and numerous other countries, as you know, and, and he hated the Jews, and he wanted to eradicate them, and, and her and her family began to hiding Jews and, and having them, helping them escape, and eventually they were caught. And so they were, her and her sister were sent to this concentration camp, and there her sister died, and she nearly died, but she, the Lord kept her on the earth for this reason. After the war, she began to share her story. And I'll never forget this story that she shares. You can Google it and it'll come right up and you can read it in her own words. I'll paraphrase it. But she was it. She, the Lord led her to go back into Germany because the German people were, their hearts were cold and their hearts were, were devastated. And it was such a terrible, painful time. And Corrie ten Boom was there sharing. She says, in the basements of a bombed-out building, and the place was packed. And she said, the Germans were, at that point, so, their hearts were so cold, they, they didn't show any emotion. And she shared her story. And she said, after she was done, everybody was quiet, people packed up, and everyone was leaving. There was no emotion. And then all of a sudden, she seen him. There was a guy moving up towards her. The crowd was leaving, and he was working his way up toward to see her. And all of a sudden, she had an incredible flashback. He had a dark gray overcoat, heavy set. But what she seen in her mind was a Nazi uniform. He was a Nazi officer in her concentration camp where her sister died, who had killed many had overseen, the, was one of the guards. And he comes up to her, and immediately she recognized him. And he puts out his hand, and she froze. She says, my blood went cold. I couldn't say anything. I couldn't move. And he says to her, you might not remember me, 
But I was one of those officers in that camp. And you mentioned your story. I was that man. Will you please forgive me? Since the war, I became a Christian. And God has forgiven me for all my sins. Will you forgive me? And she says, I could barely get out the words. I had spoken for like an hour to these people about forgiveness and how God loves them. And now God tested it in my own heart. She puts out her hand, gives him a hug, and they wept together. I forgive you. You see, Jesus says that the one, the person who is forgiven much loves much. Love is experienced in forgiveness. And this is why so many of us as God's people love so little. We don't experience the full forgiveness and reconciliation of Jesus. And he brings us, reconciling us back to God. We still deal with a lot of condemnation, a lot of this kind of guilt hanging over us. We don't allow Jesus to look us straight in the eye and say, I forgive you. All your sins are gone. There is no condemnation in Christ Jesus. Not even one little bit. You're justified before God just as if you had never sinned. Receive my forgiveness. When I receive that in my heart, all my guilty conscience is washed clean. There's no dirt of guilt there anymore. I'm blameless before him. Now I'm free to love you just like I have been loved. But if I walk around in my Christian life and I journey through my Christian life with this sense of guilt before God and constantly feeling like Jesus is barely loving me, he's putting up with me, that's how I'll relate to you because that's the only kind of love I have to give to you. So if you're struggling and loving others, come draw near to the heart of God. Open up your heart to him. Let him pour out his perfect, pure love of who he is and let that become your identity of who you are. And everything else will find its rightful place in your life. But by this show, all men know that you are his disciple as you love one another as you're loved. I'll tell you one more story. Amazing story. The boys and I watched a movie last night. Our family did. Katie and the boys and I. The only, it's a true story, of what happened in World War II on Christmas Eve of 1944. The Americans and the Allies were pushing their way up into Germany, and it was Hitler's last, some of his last stands before they surrendered. And on Christmas Eve, there was a fierce battle going on in the hills of Germany. And the place where this lady and her son were living in the city was completely being bombed out. Her family for generations had had this little cabin up in the woods right by the front lines. She had no place to go. They were starving. She packs up. Her husband was in the German military, German lady. Her son had been killed in Stalingrad fighting the Russians. She only had her 12-year-old son left. 
She packs up everything they had in their food, and they make their trek their way right through the front lines, through this wooded area, into their cabin. They clean up the cabin because no one had been there for a long time. It's dusty. They light the fire. She starts cooking the meal. And the next thing they know, boom, the door breaks open, and a soldier comes in with a gun. And he clears the house. It's just you guys, and they're freezing. They're, they're very scared because this soldier is an American soldier. And shortly after him comes his sergeant carrying a wounded American soldier. And he lays him on her bed. And he's been wounded in the leg. And he starts trying to take care of him. And she doesn't know quite what to do. And he tells her, your house is my house. This is a war zone. This is now our barracks and our hospital. And she says, okay, but no guns in my house. And she gets her 12-year-old boy to take the guns and put them outside in a storage. It infuriates this sergeant, American sergeant, his private. Can you imagine? They're in the middle of a war zone. They're on the front lines, and now they have no guns. He says, where are my guns? And this lady is a strong lady, filled with the love of God. Not a love for Americans, and a lot of, not a love for her German people. A love for God, and a love for people. And she says, listen, I'm going to let you be in my house, and I'll cook you a dinner tonight. But there are not going to be guns in my house. I will not give you that gun. And she says, there might be a war going outside, but not in this house. So he kind of, okay, what is he going to do? He could kill her. But he, he says, okay, well, we need your help. So she starts helping him with the wounded soldier. You'll have to watch the movie. It's amazing. It's called Silent Night. A little while later, Lucas. Yeah. It's under faith and family. A little while later, the door breaks in again. No, no, I'm sorry. Let me, let me go back. One of the American soldiers goes out to get wood in the woodshed with the 12-year-old boy. And all of a sudden, here come three German troops. Yeah. Where the guns were. He wanted his guns back. And the boy has the wood. All of a sudden, these three German troops come up, and they're surrounding the house. And then they see him. He grabs a little stick. This American private grabs a little stick. He's behind him, and he says, drop your guns. I'll just go through the story. But it's an axe. That's right. He has an axe. They lay down their weapons. They grab the guns. And to make the short, this long story short, they also go into the house. Now there's three American soldiers and three German soldiers in her house. And she says, this is Christmas Eve, and the war is raging on outside. You can hear the tanks. They're on the front lines. But she says to the Germans and to the Americans, all guns are outside my house. You can sleep here for the night. But tonight, God loves us. We're going to celebrate Christmas. And it goes through the story and the struggle. 
The end result is this. They had a wonderful Christmas Eve. And they all slept there together with their guns outside. And the next morning, they got up. And through the whole night, they had numerous skirmishes. Because there was a lot of bitterness, arguing. And she would always quiet it down, even attempts sometimes to kill each other. And she stepped right in front of them, in between them, and implored them with God's love, risking your own life. But in the morning, they gave each other a hug and went back to their front lines. That's what God's love does. It trumps patriotism. It trumps war. It trumps doctrine. It trumps all of our differences. And it overcomes every evil thing done to us by others. It overcomes all the evil in my life, first of all. All that condemnation, every sin. Did you want to say something? Oh yeah. Well they can they can watch that part. Today Jesus is standing. God is standing. To anyone who is like Moses saying, Show me your glory. And the Lord is standing, ready to stand there in your life and in mine and declare who he is. God of love. And invite us into that love. And then to share it with the world. This is the church of Jesus Christ. This is who I'm aspiring to be. And whom the Lord is leading me into. In Ephesians chapter 5, he says, Walk in love as Christ has loved you. Love is a journey, a development in our life. Just keep your heart open. The Lord will develop it. The Lord will perfect it. The Lord will test it. Satan will come against it and try it. But that all serves to develop it. Allow you and I to experience the failures of it and the triumphs of it. Father, I pray teach us to love. Perfect it in our hearts. But most of all, thank you for loving us so well. In Jesus' name. And can you hear me? Yeah. And we get to enjoy that love. Isn't it that amazing? For free. Um, well, you all know that we have a meal getting ready. Um, I just wanted to ask if, if there's anybody that need or want prayer. Um, 
We can pray for you. We will still pray for you anyways. But... All right, well, let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word. God, thank you for, thank you, God, that um, you've revealed, you revealed yourself to us, God, in, in such a way that uh, even though it's impossible, it's still possible with Jesus, and that we get to enjoy who you are and And to be transformed by your love and, and just experience your love. God, I thank you for the word that you shared with us today. Thank you for you revealing yourself again and again and again. Thank you for being patient and being kind towards each one of us. We just want to praise your name and, and bless you with everything we are, with everything we have. Because you deserve it. Thank you for this day. Thank you for this meal that we get to enjoy together. I pray that it is it is good, it's good to all of us, and we get to enjoy each other as well in conversations and relationships. We bless your name, Jesus, and we love you. Thank you for loving us. In your name, we pray, God. Amen. Amen. Well, let's enjoy the meal and good conversations. Uh, we're very happy to have everybody here today. Um, you are dismissed.